Good evening and welcome. Whether you've been joining us all week, whether this is the first time you've joined us, or whether you fit somewhere in between those. This is the fourth of our summer school theme talks, hosted in virtual space, but very real. And you'll soon be hearing from Bob Janice Dillon. The summer school panel who've put together these evenings are absolutely delighted to be able to offer them to you. The theme talks are a central ingredient of all summer schools, and it's a pleasure to share them in this way. The panel, who are all very skilled in all sorts of things, are particularly good at waving. So in alphabetical order by first name, I'd like you to meet Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, Louise Baumberg, Michael Allard, and Nicola Temple. After our theme talk tomorrow evening, we'll be offering some closing devotions. You're very welcome to join us for that after the breakout rooms. If you're not able to join the breakout rooms, it will be perfectly possible to come back in for the closing devotions. We'll let you know tomorrow what time you'd need to come back. So just make a mental note of that. Some housekeeping before I hand you over to Bob. You may have heard most of this before. You may be able to recite it, but some of it is possibly new. Please take care of what you need during this talk. Staring at a screen for any length of time is very tiring, so please feel free to look away for a moment or to turn your camera off and rest your eyes. If you do get up to move around at any point, please do turn your camera off. Although you can probably only see the speaker, you will still be visible and movement can be quite distracting for other people. If the panel becomes aware of anything which shouldn't be happening, we will deal with it as soon as we can. So if you're doing anything other than just sitting, watching and listening, please turn your camera off. We are recording this talk as we have all the theme talks. Again, if you'd rather not be in shot at any point, you're welcome to just leave your camera off. And the recording should be available on YouTube by tomorrow lunchtime. You'll all be on mute throughout the talk and the chat box will be disabled. When we go into breakout rooms, of course, you will be able to chat again. If you would benefit from subtitles, you can turn them on using the closed caption button button at the bottom of your screen. If they're on and you don't want them, the same button turns them off. Please bear in mind they're automatically generated and there are sometimes some quirks which should be ironed out in the edited version. At the end of Bob's talk, we're gonna have a five minute break and then you're invited back to join in small discussion groups and those groups are not recorded. You may need or prefer to leave at that point and you will go with our blessing. We hope to see you tomorrow evening for our final talk from Linda Hart. If you would like a pastoral chat about anything that crops up in the session, Michael Allard and myself, we're both Unitarian ministers, are available until 9.45 this evening, either by email or Facebook Messenger and our details were sent out with your invitation. So, our theme speaker this evening is Bob Janice Dillon. 
Bob has said, I can say what I like in this introduction, including possibly the truth. So I'm reading what he said on the basis that it is probably the truth. Bob is co-minister at the Merseyside Unitarian Ministry Partnership, serving Unitarian chapels in Warrington, Wigan and Chester. He was born in Boston, USA, and previously served a Unitarian Universalist congregation in New Jersey. He received a bachelor's degree in philosophy and English literature from the University of Birmingham, UK, a master's in theology from Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, and a graduate certificate in spiritual direction from the Moravian Seminary in Pennsylvania. He lives in Newton the Willows with his family. So I invite you to settle into a spirit of reflection and receptiveness as we listen to some music, after which you'll be in Bob's hands. Loving you is just a little bit easy. 
Walt Whitman writes, all is truth. Oh me, one of slack faith so long, standing aloof, denying portions so long, only aware today of compact, all diffused truth, discovering today there is no lie or form of lie and can be none but grows as inevitably upon itself as the truth does on itself. Or as any law of the earth or any natural production of the earth does. Nothing fails its perfect return. And that what are called lies are perfect returns. And that each thing exactly represents itself and what has preceded it. And that the truth includes all and is compact just as much as space is compact, and that there is no flaw or vacuum in the amount of the truth, but that all is truth without exception. And henceforth, I will go celebrate anything I see or am, and sing and laugh and deny nothing. Good evening, friends, and here is something true. It is good to be together this evening. Thank you all for coming for our time together. And whatever brings you here this evening, however you arrive on our Zoom conversation, you are very welcome here. We have diversity of experiences and backgrounds, a diversity of perspectives, uh, a huge diversity that brings us here together, and it is so good to be together amidst our diversity. So I'm here to talk about truth, and I, I was something of a kind of a last-minute stand-in, I have to, have to confess, and I also further have to confess that when I heard that this year's theme was on um, truth and speaking truth in love, I thought, well, that's good that I'm not the theme speaker this, uh, this year. Um, and it was also, but it's fortunate um, that Stephanie Bismuth's marvelous talk was yesterday because like her, I'm a bit of a storyteller. And so sometimes I find it hard to kind of say, what is the truth? I also a philosophy major and we're famous for not knowing what the truth is or isn't. We're talking around it in all circles. But I just, struggle with what the truth is. Sometimes I know Pontius Pilate, who was also mentioned yesterday, when he washed his hands and said, what is truth? I sort of identify with him. I say, good question, Pilate. That's great. And I know the story is supposed to say, you know, wishy-washy, and, and I get that. There's a part of me thinking, what is truth? That's a, that's a great question. But I had the opportunity to speak here tonight, and I thought I would speak on one of my favorite subjects, um, and it's a story, and it's the story of Jonah, Book of Jonah, which is a true story. I'm not sure about the bit about the whale, which we will get to later, or, or any of the other bits, but there's truth, as we've talked about throughout this week, and if you're just joining us today, you, 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 you can, it, don't worry, but we, we discussed how there were lots of different types of truth, and, and uh, this is truth of stories. So I thought, am I in this story Jonah, which some of you may have great familiar with, and some of you may have just heard the, the, the name and not known 
who Jonah was. Well, I thought it's an important story about truth. And it's about personal truth, um, as well as truth out there in the world. I stumbled across a beautiful quote by Susan Eloise Hinton from her book, classic book, The Outsiders. She wrote, I lie to myself all the time, but I don't believe me. I lie to myself all the time, but I don't believe me. And there's something about that in the book of Jonah. Uh, and as I say, there's something powerful about stories. And I love what Stephanie said yesterday, those who cope best are those who tell the best stories. And I think this is one of the best stories. Now, it's not an obvious choice for a week on speaking the truth in love because it is, I believe, a work of fiction. Not only that bit about the whale, which we'll get to, but there are a number of other details that leads to think that it's probably not something that actually happened, at least not the way that it happened. And probably great parts of it, if not all of it, were, to use a word, fabricated. Now, this in the Jewish tradition, that's not much of a challenge. I mean, I'm sure there are, there are some Jewish people who find it, that it's literally true, but on the whole, it's considered midrash, which is to say kind of story about greater truth. Um, sometimes in the Christian tradition, there are some who hold that Jonah was an actual prophet and it's literally true. And as I say, I, I, I find that um, in some ways, it's a more beautiful story to think that somebody was, was, was crafting, a person inspired, divinely inspired, was crafting this beautiful story. Anyway, what is Jonah? It's a book in the Bible, uh, in Christian tradition, you know, well, the Old Testament. It's written by somebody, sometime. We don't know who the writer was. We don't know when he or she or they were writing. By the language, we think it's probably post-exile, after the Jews came back from Babylon, pretty late in the books in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Fifth or fourth century is probably at the latest about 250 for the common era. And it's a book that's ascribed to a prophet. It's about Jonah. And that he chose Jonah is a really interesting choice. As I say, it may be a historical book. We don't know what, what Jonah actually is. Jonah is mentioned in the Bible in only one place. I'm going to read it to you now, other than the book of Jonah. This is 2 Kings um, uh, chapter 14, verses 23. Um, and there's a lot of names in this, so we'll get through it quickly, don't worry. In the 50th year of King Azariah of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahim, um, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And I'm on the wrong chapter. I've cut ahead there. That's chapter 15. We're not going to get to there. The Book of Kings is heavy going. In the 50th, 15th year of King Amaziah, son of Joash of Judah, King Jeroboam, son of of Joash of Israel began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebahamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, prophet who was from gath -Hepher. For the Lord saw that dis this, the distress of Israel was very bitter. There was no one left, bond or free, and no one to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved the hand of Aaron, son of Joash. 
don't worry, the story gets more interesting from there. But what I want to point out about this is that J Jonah was an unknown prophet who gets one line from a king that lived a long way away, who according to the histories was an incredibly wicked king. Now, why would you name a, a, a prophet from the most that nobody knew? And it's almost like a fiction writer choosing the most unusual, un, the, the character you'd least likely to be the tool of redemption. This prophet who has no, nothing to say in the Bible. And all that we know is he was, the pro, he was the, one of the prophets of a king who was a wicked king, but nonetheless had some military success. Interestingly enough, Herman Melville, you may have heard of Moby Dick, the other big fish story. Um, you may remember that the characters in there are called Ahab and Ishmael. And Ahab was another wicked king, not a wicked prophet, but a wicked king. And Ishmael was the brother, uh, um, one of the Genesis figures who kids don't know particularly well for. So you can hear Herman Melville winking through the centuries at the writer of Jonah, which I think is just amazing. You know, Herman Melville's aware of this and he's saying, Okay, I see what you're doing here, and I'll do the same thing, and I'm going to call my character Ahab. The last thing I'll say about, oh, I'll say two more things before we dive into the text, which is what I'm really here for and what I'd like to do. Um, one is that there are different works in the Bible, and there are different truths. All of that, they, they operate on different levels. And a lot of scholars view Jonah as being... Um, living in a cosmopolitan age. I know when you hear the, the word 250 before the common era, it feels like a long time ago. And it feels like the people were all living in villages, like in Neolithic times. Well, this was a Neolithic times. And the politics was as complicated as politics is today. The, there, was, there was diverse peoples. The Jewish people were living with lots of other people at the same, same time. It was a complicated place. And around the time Jonah was writing, Ezra and Nehemiah were writing nationalist books writing books to say, come on, Jewish people, we need to get together and be one nation, which is a beautiful thought, but it can also be um, come a bit xenophobic. And Jonah, as we'll see, is explicitly the other way, is saying it's opening up the Jewish story and saying it's not just the Jewish The second thing I will say is how sacred it is to the Jewish tradition as it is to the Christian tradition. And the Christian tradition, it's a, it, it ties in with, with the story of Jesus, as we'll see. And in the Jewish tradition, it's read on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day when you go to the synagogue for hours and hours and hours. It won't be quite so long today. I'm letting you off easy, just about an hour. But um, when I first heard that Jonah, which is this kind of quirky story, when, when the Jews have such a rich thing of literature, um, canon to choose from, I thought, why is Jonah read? Until I've been loving Jonah for about 15 years now. And now, if anyone were to say, I would say, well, how could you not read Jonah on Yom Kippur? It is a perfect story of redemption. So anyway, that's enough of a teaser. We're going to dive into the text. I'm grateful for the voice of God, which will be Jane Blackhall here tonight. Um, so Jane will be the voice of God, a.k.a. the narrator. And I will be the primary interpreter, by which I don't mean hierarchically. Um, I mean temporally, because I'll interpret it first. And afterwards, after this hour, you can say, Bob, was, uh, I, can't agree. I can't agree with him one bit, and he was completely wrong, and that's perfectly okay. So with that, we'll turn it over to the voice of God in black. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, if you've ever been to the British Museum, if you go in and you turn left, you'll see these wonderful panels of warfare from, the, from Nineveh. It was a powerful, powerful empire, which had already lost its power by the time the writer of Jonah was, was writing. But it was uh, incredibly powerful, and it was also a cosmopolitan city. It was a huge place. It was the center of the universe at that time. It was the Rome before there was Rome, um, even though it was the bad guys, it was the ones who were oppressing um, Jerusalem. So instead of that, he went to Tarshish. Now, we don't know where Tarshish is. Some scholars say it might be Britain, um, but more scholars think that it's Spain. You just choose whichever one you want. But the point is, um, not, nothing, no offense to Britain or Spain, but in those days, that was as far out in the middle of nowhere. So basically, God spoke to, to Jonah, said, I want you to go to London, to the city, to the heart of the biggest city in the world. And remember, these are the bad guys city. Where we are the empire. You want to go to the heart of the empire, the biggest city in the world, London. Um, and I want you to, to preach to them and tell them, cry out against them. And Jonah said, sure thing. Hopped on a boat and went to the Isle of Skye as far as he could go in the opposite direction. Now, God hasn't spoken to me clearly throughout my life. I've never heard a voice that I identify um, as pure and simple, the voice of God. I have spoken to people who have, who have heard it in, in various places, and maybe you have. But I do wonder, is there such a thing as calling? Is there a truth that we follow in our lives, a fate? Or if maybe not a fate, maybe is there a path in our lives? I know that when my father, my dad was about 16 or 17, he went to the Netherlands and he was from the Midwest in America. A very, it's, uh, hadn't traveled all his life and he went to the Netherlands. And as soon as he went to a foreign country, he said, this is what I wanna do. I wanna be in a foreign country. I wanna do anything international. I wanna travel the world. And he's now an international law professor and he did that. And he just knew deep in his heart. Now, as you know, for the other point of view, I was a philosophy major, which is a pretty clear indication. I had no clue the way my, my life was gonna go. And I didn't know my path. Every once in a while, I feel a sort of a stirring, stirring that I have to do something. I don't know if you feel, ever feel that, that I just feel compelled in a certain direction, moving in a certain direction. And I know as well that sometimes I disobey that calling within me, wherever it comes from. That sometimes I, I know that I, I, I need to go in a certain direction and I sort of don't listen to it for a while. But do we have a fate? Is there a, is there a way that our lives are meant to travel? For every celebrity on Parkinson's who's saying about, I just believed in myself and then I became this incredible famous author or I became this Act, actor or, or all of this and every, every success followed, there were loads and loads of people who followed their dreams and it didn't go that way. And we're sure that following their dreams was the way to go. So right at the beginning of this story, Jonah, we have somebody who's following his calling. And I urge you to think of it in a personal way and not get too caught up about if, you, if religious stories start to feel a distance from them. 
feel that connection. Jonah is, is, is not following this call, but he hears this call to go and preach. It's a very difficult thing to go to the bad guy's town in Nineveh, preach repentance that goes in the opposite direction. So let's see what happens. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, so that we may not perish. So there's a storm. But before the storm, storm, let's remember they're out on the ocean. And there's something special about an ocean. You've probably spent some time or seen an ocean or been at the side of an ocean. I don't know how many of us have sailed. I haven't spent a lot of time sailing, but I know there's a lot of time of calm, a lot of time to reflect. And sometimes it's become that nothing is happening, but you probably wouldn't know anything about that unless you've lived through, say, a global lockdown in the middle of COVID-19. But sometimes you have a lot of time to just think about things, right? So Jonah, I presume the storm didn't happen the first day out. He had some time, and you can picture the waves as, as he's on this ship, and he's booked a passage, and he's traveling, and he has time to think about life. And not only that, there's this, I love the phrase, a vast generosity of silence, vast generosity of silence. When we talk about prophetic books, sometimes we think about talking to God and it's God answers and it's just call and response, and that's fine. But there's also this sense sometimes, whether we believe in God or not, God says nothing. Sometimes it's just silence. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we look we go out for a walk and we see a tree and it's just a tree. You know, it could have a great message for us. It could tell us that we should have roots in the ground or that we should grow or that leaves. All of that, that's great. But sometimes silence kicks in and we see the tree as just a tree. In spiritual terms, the fancy term for this is apophatic prayer. There's prayer where you're trying to find a words for things. And then there's the prayer of silence simply being one with silence. And sometimes we don't get this huge answer from the divine. All we get is silence. And sometimes when we're walking around, silence is enough. Sometimes if we ask something to the universe and there's no response, that's okay. But then there's a storm. That's not what's happened to Jonah. There is this storm. Something breaks into life, something happening. And the storm happens, you wouldn't know anything about storms unless you lived through, say, a global pandemic. But storms happen, and they happen when you, whether you expect them or whether you're not. And Jonah's been asleep. He's been in the bottom of the boat. Now, in the Christian story, this, this sort of foretells the Jesus being asleep. But like the Christian story, it's also a symbol of the subconscious. But sometimes it, things take us by surprise. Jonah sort of knows in the back of his mind that he wasn't supposed to be going to Tarshish, that he was going to Nineveh, but he kind of ignores it, and he's kind of in the bottom of the boat. And finally, the storm happens, and it's the sailors who come down and say, buddy, you know what? Something's happened. You know, there's this storm. And sometimes if 
you're going the wrong direction. It's your friends that tell you that you're going the wrong direction. Your friends may say to you, is everything okay? Because you don't seem the same. And there's this sign that, you know, you're just not going the right direction. You can dispute that. It's your call. You can say, actually, I'm, I'm meant for Tarshish. But maybe that storm keeps coming. So let's hear the next bit of the storm, if you will, James. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So... Jonah eventually gets thrown into the water, but before he does, the men plead. They say, what's, what's happening? And Jonah tells them it's, uh, it's, it's his fault. And they cast lots and they find out that it really is his fault. And even then, they row for land. You really have to feel for these sailors, don't you? They're taking, they're taking every step to try to protect Jonah. And again, we see here, because they're not Jewish people, we see here a positive depiction of ref, of, of foreigners, the foreigners here in the book of Jonah, that the writer of Jonah is very keen to say that these sailors were good people who were trying to help Jonah out. Jonah's the one who's, who's in trouble. It's almost the opposite of what you might see of some of the media coverage of refugees. Here are these people who are trying to help Jonah when he's the one caught, you know, on, on, on the ship, when he, the ship's almost raging back and forth and about to, to be broken open. Although maybe they're rescuing him from being a refugee in Britain, I don't know. So Jonah's trying to, uh, uh, trying again. Uh, God seems to be saying that he's got to make, he's got to fulfill his fate. Now, whether this is just a story or this is true, that's, that's up, up to you. I do like the image from Emerson. It says, when you are going the direction you're supposed to be going, the forces of the universe conspire with you as if you're swimming downstream at a river. If you've ever swam downstream, I think you might even say sailing, it's easy to travel that way. But when you're going the wrong way, you feel the, uh, it's like going upstream. You can just about manage it. But if you're on a river, you gotta keep banking, you gotta keep turning. And it's very, very hard to do that. And sometimes when we're going the wrong way in life, Maybe we don't mean this objectively. Maybe it's just not a good fit. Maybe it's not God-given wrong way. But we can feel 
like we're trying to swim upstream. Things just aren't going the way we are. So you probably at a time like that, I suppose, when it just feels like everything is so much effort. And it keeps getting harder and harder and harder and more difficult until you're thrown into the water. You remember that poem we heard Louise shared on the uh, poem In a Time of Peril by Barbara Rohde. Of course, truth is hard. It is a rock. Yet I do not think it will fall upon me and crush me. I do not think they can hammer it to bits and stone me. Help me place the rock in the strong current of these rushing waters. I must climb upon it. I must know how truth feels when I plunge naked into the bright depth of these waters. I must know how truth feels. Well, Jonah's there in the midst of the water, in the midst of the truth, facing the hardest time of his life. Let's see what happens next. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There we go. You probably know that bit, right? Right. And some say fish and some say whale and some say, well, it says fish, so it can't be a whale because whales are mammals. And I'll tell you what, the writer of Jonah in the third century BCE probably didn't care. Like, I like to think it's a whale because it's, have you ever seen a whale? They're, they're massive and they're quite terrifying. So, and I, I particularly love blue whales. They're very peaceful from a distance, but I have try to imagine. And now, Jonah and the whale, you see all these cartoons. You see all the, we've seen Jaws, right? I want to imagine, just imagine being in the water in the storm and these waves are crashing. And then this blue whale, I know blue whales don't eat people, just come with me. This giant, giant leviathan thing starts coming and comes out of the water. And the blue whale, Jonah is just trying to swim and, and it, things already look hopeless, right? He's swimming in the middle of a storm. And then this blue whale comes and boom, sees it coming, sees the shape, says, oh, it looks, it looks like something really, really fearsome. And then all of a sudden, swallows Jonah up. Now, this is a bit of the story that's true. And I know it's true because I know people who have been swallowed by the whale and times I've been swallowed by the whale. If you've ever been in that place where there's just no hope, there's no even looking to the next day. That's not even, it's not even, it's beyond fear. It's just this is despair. This is it. And of course, the tomb, which is also three days, is the same feeling, that sense of just, just complete absence of any kind of light. That holy mystery, but such a, in the moment, such a hard mystery. Interestingly enough, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, all we, all we hear is that Jonah was in the whale for three days and three nights. It would be great to know what his experience was like, right? You want to know the details of what he had for breakfast, if he ate anything, you know, how he survived and what, you know, what did he do in the whale? What, what did it look like and all of that? You have to imagine all that. Believe me, people told that story. That was part of, that was part of the telling of Jonah. But what it does say in the text is that Jonah uh, prays in the belly of the whale. And so I want, want us to hear this, this prayer and to think about what is truth 
in the belly of the whale, when you're in that place where there's no yesterday and no tomorrow and you're swallowed up by the, the whale, whatever it is, whether, whether you, you, you're down to your last, less than your last penny when you're thousands of pounds in debt, whether you just are something, the, the, the floor has been taken out from under you, when everything that you expected has just been completely swallowed up. So let's hear this, this Jonah. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah gives a prayer of gratitude. And, you know, prayers of gratitude, we're used to those from the Bible, right? Or from religion in general. But it's worth noting that the writer of Jonah had Jonah say this in the belly of the whale, not after he's vomited out, which is a good choice of, choice of words by the writer there. But in the belly of the whale, when there was no clue. I mean, Jonah didn't know he was going to be in there. The belly of she Sheol, which is a, a metaphor for hell, for as bad as things can get. Not all the Christian layers on it, but simply can be held in the midst of life, in the belly of, of the, 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 the darkness that, is, that uh, is, is what we fear the most. And Jonah says a prayer of gratitude. Now, this is a part that may seem the most unrealistic because we think of, oh, I was Jonah, I'd kvetch, you know, I'd complain, I'd, I'd, have, I'd, I'd say, well, you know, what, what was me? Yet, I remember a conversation I had with a, a, a woman who um, was a recovering alcoholic who had had all kinds of things. Her childhood had been just um, atrocious, just and, um, with, with had, had just had every burden to bear. And she was also uh, a cancer survivor. So just everything going wrong at once. And she said, you know, as soon as I put my feet on the floor from the bed, I'm grateful. And I could give you any number of stories like that. And I know that's a cliche that when I, you know, it's, I'm grateful from the first moment of, of the day, but the way she said it, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was a hard won gratitude. And I think sometimes when we're out of our comfort zone and things get so, so bad, it really is bad for at first. I think Jonah probably didn't pray this on the first day, but sometimes when it's so awful, there's a realness there, right? We're shielded from this realness. But sometimes it hits us and it's awful when we don't know what happens in life. And yet sometimes we can get to that place where we can sing a hymn of gratitude even in that suffering. 
because what else can you do? Because you feel something, you feel midst, and you want to have that thing of gratitude. Stephanie says it's about telling the best stories to cope. And sometimes the best story to cope is a story of gratitude. And this is the deep, dark belly of the whale, Sheol gratitude. As an aside, I know um, British people, I don't understand. Maybe you can explain it to me sometime. I've never understood streets of London, right? You know streets of London. It seems to me, you, know, you see streets of London, I don't understand the philosophy of it. And maybe this is just, uh, maybe this matters. But it says, you know, you think you have it hard. Somebody's got it worse. And to me, that seems what, you know, that seems a strange way to go about things, comparing suffering to one another. And I think sometimes it leads to a kind of middle-class guilt that people think, well, you know, my suffering isn't as bad as some, so I shouldn't indulge in my suffering. And I think there's a truth to that. We need to have some kind of perspective, but there's also the truth that suffering is suffering. And I know plenty of people, I spend um, a fair amount of time with folks who have really hit rock bottom, folks who are, um, who are homeless, um, folks who are in transitional situations. And they're the first ones to be compassionate to me when I stub my toe. You know, there, there's, there's suffering is suffering. And in the midst of suffering, though, we can still have gratitude, not because we think our situation is better than somebody else's, but because we want to feel that we're still alive. It feels real. We've been in the belly of the whale. And you know what? Life is still here. We're going to have an opportunity for a little break now. I was trying to get the words of Jonah set to music, but they're also, a lot of them are so kiddie. Some of the Christian rock ones are okay, but they change. We decided to do a modern song. This is a song by spiritualized and you are welcome to get up and stretch if you wish to turn off the camera you can pray you can cry you can dance feel free to engage however you'd like uh, with this psalm which i think very much is in the spirit of jonah from the band spiritualized ladies and gentlemen we're floating in space Giant step each day. Oh, 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 oh. 
So John is out of the belly of the whale and ready to preach. And this is, uh, we get to the part of the story that people don't know, which I think is, gets to be the best part. So let's dive right in. Uh, Jane, if you would take it from here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, another reason why it's fiction is Nineveh did not take three days to cross in those days. It was a big city, but you, could, you can walk across Manhattan in less than three days, and it was not Manhattan. But it's, a, it's, an, it's an exaggeration of a big place. And Jonah comes in there and he speaks the truth and he speaks to people. This is the big moment, right? This is the big climax, him speaking God's truth to the people. And let's see what happens. Is he successful? Suspense, a suspense. Jane, if you would read on. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not... was?" Not this what I said when I was still in my country. Therefore I fed, fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, it is, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah goes to Nineveh, gets to the great city, and he preaches his truth. He speaks his truth. And he says, Nineveh is going to fall in 40 days. Now, I know we think religious prophet, and a lot of times nowadays we kind of think nutcase, somebody with a sign saying the end is near, and somebody that we don't uh, want to get caught up in conversation with. There's a lot of truth to that for prophets today as there were yesterday. I do want to speak up to this idea of prophetic truth, which is still true today. I've been, as many of you have been, involved in a number of causes um, in, in my time from, um, we in New Jersey, we were just at the right time to, to speak up for equal marriage for uh, gay and lesbian uh, couples and, and won that right. And just recently seen the, the Black Lives Matter march and the, so many people, including so many young people who have been on that. And so I want to speak for the prophetic tradition and I don't, again, you're hearing all my little uh, things that I 
squeamish about it, but I, I, I don't like it 100% when people say, why do you do it? And they say, well, it's something that I personally believe in. And that's not really why. It's not just, and it's not just that people say, oh, equal marriage would be great because I'd like to marry my partner, although that's very much a part of it. But people do it for a deeper reason than that. Right? They do it because it's true, because it's right, because it's the way it should be, because that is the march of God, of love, of truth, of justice. You can use whatever word you you want, but it's something larger than us that we have to, we feel called to, compelled to participate in and say, this is the way that it should be. This is the truth that we are headed towards. And so this is what Jonah says. He comes to Nineveh and says, exactly that. And he's successful. All the people do it. It's quite humorous, as you can see, that the king puts sackcloth and, clash, uh, uh, sackcloth and ashes on everybody. They have these mourning robes, including the cattle. And picture all the cows, sackcloth and ashes on the cattle, who I don't think have probably done all that much wrong. But everybody repents, and then God doesn't destroy the city. So we have the great big ending to Jonah, right? Jonah's successful. He's this great action hero, who strives into the bad guy's town, tells them repent, and then he repents. And yet... He's angry, right? So it goes from being a great big Hollywood blockbuster action movie to kind of an indie comedy. Why is Jonah angry? Now we can imagine Jonah as a prophet with that sign on, the end is near and feeling discouraged. We can kind of, that might be an image that we're comfortable with because it's not like us, but you can also imagine, right, when things don't go our way, he's waiting for something. He's gone all this way for God to basically do nothing, right? God just, the city's just stayed the same as it ever was. You know, he went to the center of Manhattan and said, you must repent. And then God didn't show up. There was no smiting at all. Um, I'm happy that this is a book without smiting. And I think Jonah's author intended this to be a book without smiting. But he also intended God, Jonah's anger. And, he, and Jonah gets so mad at things. He said, I, I knew you were a loving God and a merciful God. And I knew prophetic gig wouldn't be for me. And again, we can laugh at Jonah, and perhaps we're supposed to laugh at Jonah, but also we might feel for him. And you might have had the times when life doesn't go your way, right? When you're looking for that promotion and it doesn't happen, or you do put all this effort in with your children and then something just goes terribly wrong or something goes not the way you expect it. There's so many tragedies in life where we put so much work and effort and time in, and then they're not rewarded. And whether we believe in God or not, we sort of look up to the heavens and we say, how, what, I've been doing all of this. And then, so God's response to Jonah, because this is Bible book, we get to God's response in nice, easy text. And God's response is yatab chara. Yatab means good or pleasing, and chara means angry. Hebrew. The really interesting, is it good for you to be angry? Or another way of saying that is, is, is it pleasurable? Is that anger pleasurable? Or you might even say, how's that anger working? Which is such an answer, right? You begin to see why God gets a bad name in the Bible. Because how dare he ask that, right? After throwing Jonah all this, say, is it good for you to be angry? How's that anger working for you? It seems like such a, uh, such a, a, a callous answer from God. And yet, when we look at it from a human perspective, isn't that sometimes the answer we get? How's that anger working for you? May not be the friendliest answer. But anyway, we're getting near the end now. So let's hear 
this is the end of the book of Jonah, which is the best bit. So let's hear what happens after God asks, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not laboured nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? What a strange ending, right? What a strange ending. What are we to make of that ending? Jonah goes, he says, he, God says, is it right for you to be angry? And he, Jonah sulks out, he storms out, and he goes and he sits under a plant. And then he's got this one plant, and then the plant gets a worm, gets a disease of some kind, and it dies. And then Jonah gets even more in a huff, and God says, is it right to, to be angry? And Jonah says, it is right, even to death. And then God has this response about the 120,000 people uh, um, that are in there. They don't know their right hand from their left. They barely know anything. They're just stumbling about. And much livestock. We end again with livestock, cattle. But what are we to make of this? It is comical. There's no question of the humor in here. I mean, here he is. He's got a plan. It's comical, but it's also just so sad. It's kind of like that country western song you know when when you lose everything and and you lose you lose every little bit of life and and you lose your your job or or your marriage or or your health and then all you've got left is is a dog right you've got a dog and then the dog dies and you're like come on god right and jonah's got a plant right all he's got is a plant and he sits under this plant and he grows to love a plant he's got, at least he's got some shade and he's in the desert He's got nothing else. And he's like, well, I've got this plant. It's all right. And then God goes and kills that. Come on, God, right? There's this huge anger in there. And God says again, Yatab chara. Is it right for you to be angry? How's that anger working for you? And Jonah talks back. And in the Hebrew tradition, Jewish tradition, talking back to God is, is, is totally part of, this, part of the deal. And Jonah says, it is right. I'm going to die here. I'm just going to be so angry at you that I'm going to die here, God, because you have taken away the one thing that I have. And I mean, have we not, have we not had those moments in the last six months, right? Right? Have we not felt, come on? And, and some people have it worse than us. I know. I know the streets of London song. But it's, has it not been just kind of taking the, the, the last thing? I mean, the plant gets taken away from Jonah. And God's response, which is the author of Jonah's response, is stunning. He said, you have pity on a plant that you didn't labor for. It just sprung up, this plant. And you grew to love 
plant. Uh, you didn't grow, it just grew up. And he said, oh, that's a nice plant. I like that plant. Oh, it's pretty. And he stayed there. And now you're sorry that I didn't destroy Nineveh because you would have felt so useful if I smited Nineveh, the big evil city. And you would have felt like such a big prophet, such a, such a cool guy. And you would have done all this stuff. And you would have felt so successful. Right? Success. Is the truth success? You would have felt so successful to have been speaking the truth and you said it would have perished in 40 days and then it perished. And you love a plant. Can you imagine, said God, can you imagine how much love I have for 120,000 people in this huge city? People who are stumbling about, don't know their right hand from their left hand, who are just confused, trying to go about their way. And not only that, but also livestock. And yes, by the way, Jonah is writing ecologically here. There is humor in it, but he also has an ecological awareness, which for 2,300 years ago was not being too bad. He's saying, look at the love, not just for people, for plants, for cows, for anything you can name. Just see the love that's in the world. Think about that. Now, if I can try your patience, we're going to hear one movie clip to bring this home a little bit more. And it's from a movie called About Schmidt. I'm going to give you spoilers. But this came out like 1990-something. So if you don't, I haven't seen it yet, too bad. Um, so in About Schmidt, it's been a while since I've seen it. But it's a very funny and also a tragic movie. It's a great kind of donor story. And it stars um, Jack Nicholson as a, a grumpy old man, which is not a stretch for Jack Nicholson. He does it beautifully. And life just goes wrong for him throughout the whole movie. He's just, he loses his job. He retires at the end. And he wants to go in and kind of be useful. And they just shoo him away. They say, no, no thanks. Yeah, no, no worries. Just go home. And he, he's lost his wife, so that, but he also discovers the marriage wasn't quite, some of the romance around the marriage, he, he discovers it wasn't quite what he thought it was. And his, his uh, daughter is getting married to someone he doesn't like. So all this stuff is, is going, his life is just completely meaningless. A very full life. He's just in retirement. And throughout this movie, which is kind of depressing, but as I say, kind of funny at the same time, He's writing to Ndugu, and Ndugu is a little boy in Africa. You know these, where you can give uh, 58p a week or something to, to sponsor a child in Africa, and he sponsors a child. And he does it through this, one of these uh, big, big programs. And he sends these notes, which are quite comical, because he says things like, oh, the social security check never cleared, and I didn't clear the bank, or, you know, I, my, my daughter is marrying a schmuck, and I can't believe it, I'm gonna try and break up the wedding. And Ndugu's an eight-year-old boy, in poorest Africa, you know, yeah, but we don't know the response. Ndugu's not going to understand any of this, but we hear Schmidt's, Jack Nicholson's letters to this boy saying about everything that's going wrong in his life. And he's complaining about life. He has plenty of cause to complain. His life is going in a bad direction. And he doesn't know why. And so then, at the very end of the movie, after all of this stuff happens, and he doesn't break up his his daughter's marriage, and um, in fact, he makes a fool of himself, and everything goes from bad to worse. At the end, he gets a response. So these next, it's just a two, three-minute clip, and we're going to see the response, this letter from Africa.
Sister Warren Schmidt. My name is Sister Nadine Gauthier of the Order of the Sisters of the Sacred Heart. I work in a small village near the town of Mbea in Tanzania. One of the children I care for is little Ndugu Umbo, the boy you sponsor. Ndugu is a very intelligent boy and very loving. He is an orphan. Recently, he needed medical attention for an infection of the eye, but he's better now. He loves to eat melon and he loves to paint. Ndugu and I want you to know that he receives all of your letters. He hopes that you are happy in your life and healthy. He thinks of you every day and he wants very much your happiness. Ndugu is only six years old and cannot read or write, but he has made for you a painting. He hopes that you will like his painting. Yours sincerely, Sister Nadine Gauthier. Friends, I can't tell you that life is fair. And I don't even know how to tally it up. I don't know how to tally up whether life is fair, but it doesn't feel fair all the time. It doesn't feel right all the time. It says that even from my own privileged perspective in the first world, and certainly looking at other parts of the world and other experiences. And even if you're living a very comfortable life, you can feel free to be angry, I think. I think it's okay. I think it's allowed. I think it's justified. I think it's biblical. And I think it's human. But there is that question sometimes of, are we going to turn that anger into something else as well? Not let go of it, because we need that. That's the prophetic truth. That's the truth that things are not what we want them to be, and we want to make this world more beautiful. But also not letting that anger turn into 
selfish why me for too long not because why me isn't a bad question it's a fair question the world doesn't quite make sense does it add up for schmidt schmidt has lost his his job his wife he's lost the respect of his children and his self-respect and he gets a child's painting in return that's what he gets he gets a painting of him holding Ndugu's hand a boy he's never met in person a boy 5,000 miles away. But somehow he knows. He knows the lesson of Jonah, which is not that it all adds up, not that there's any calculus that we can reckon that makes it all make sense in this, in this hurting world, but also that there's an incredible amount of, of, truth, of love in this world, an incredible amount of love. 120,000 people in Nineveh, 7 billion people and so many animals and every little crawling creature that has a desire, that has a, an instinct, a calling, that is moving in a direction, sometimes gets blocked, but keeps on going. It doesn't all add up, but there is an incredible amount of love in the world. And that, my friends, is the truth. Yeah. Hey. 